like the, there was a front page story in the business, the business page about, you know, Kavanaugh bankruptcy, $2.8 million foreclosure, like all the big in bold, all caps words that you never want to see. Welcome to the Hurled Minds podcast, where we discover how to get out of our own way, unleash the full capability of our mind, become the hero of our story and a hero for other people. From an evolutionary perspective, we've evolved to manage threatening encounters. I do everything in my ability to help them, but they make the call. We have to do it in a way that doesn't just assume that going faster is going to be the cure-all. When you suffer and then you come out of it on the other side, you stand a little taller. Your voice doesn't shake anymore. Your eyes are always up. Sorry to depress you guys. Self-doubt is par for the course. It's just how you choose to deal with them, react to them or not react to them. Uh, Tough love goes a long way, and high expectation also goes a long way. But the more you expect of someone, the more they'll do. I have to keep moving forward. No good comes from going back. I don't need red tape. I'm not into rules. I'm not into regulation. I'm just going to do this. Welcome back to the Heroic Minds Podcast. On today's episode, we have Kevin Kavanaugh, a real estate developer from Portland, Oregon. During the 2008 recession, Kevin found himself $1 million in debt. Not only did he venture through and learn from the recession, he came back stronger and prepared for this 2020 pandemic. Kevin is an innovative developer. He creates revolutionary rule-bending buildings that double as social experiments and subsidized housing to help fight the homeless issue. Kevin is the owner of Guerrilla Development in Portland, Oregon. Everyone in Kevin's company makes the same amount of money and earns shares in the company. Kevin completed architecture school at UC Berkeley, he was also a fellow in 2007-2008 at Harvard's Graduate School of Design and spent a two-year stint building schools and homes for the Peace Corps in Gabon, Africa. In this episode, we answer the question, what is enough? How much do we really need? We talk about the issue with the American dream. We talk about how to run a successful business through a recession or a pandemic like we found ourselves today but also how to just run a business in general so that you can have sustainable income while also making a massive impact on society. It's a way of blurring the lines between nonprofit work and profitable work. Kevin even touches on how to find high caliber employees and furthermore, how to keep them around. And last but not least, how to earn respect from the people you do business with to ensure that they'll be there when times are tough. Before we hop into this episode, a couple announcements. First off, to the listeners that sent me dance videos to be a part of the Faith music video that I've been putting together to release, to put some smiles on people's faces during this pandemic. Thank you so much for sending me those clips. And also, I hope everyone is safe and well at this time. Now, last but not least, as always, a company that I've heard a lot of people are giving a trial to and really, really enjoying our friends at True Local. That's high-quality meat, locally sourced, individually packaged, delivered on dry ice. So you throw it right in your freezer and you pull it out whenever you want to use it. That's truelocal.ca, T-R-U-L-O-C-A-L.ca. They have been huge through this pandemic. And I think it's a great call to action for people to get involved with an amazing company. I know, again, people that have given them a try have not only raved about the meat and the product, how great it is, the service, but most importantly, the customer service the emails they've received, support they've received. It's fantastic top to bottom. So if you want to give True Local a test run, now's the time to do so. Make sure you use my discount code HEROICMINDS25, all capital letters, to get $25 off a regular size box and $10 off a personal size box. Alrighty, here we go. The funny thing is, um, and it's not, history doesn't repeat itself, it rhymes. So this feels a lot like 2009 to some degree. It's, and I'm not really answering your, I'll get to your question, but like it, it feels yes. like I'm a couple of rungs up the ladder right now. And I'm going to be able to ride this out. Back in 2009, I recall other developers, the people who do what I do, that were a couple of rungs up the ladder. They did really well. They did fine. And I didn't, I got destroyed in the, in the, the, the Great Recession of 2008 and nine. Um, But similarly to then, like it, I was like a bright shining star. I was like, I was a good story and I was an up and coming developer and I was like making my name on the scene and I was getting a lot of buzz. And then I was just done. I, you know, I was, there was like, the, there was a front page story in the business, 
the business page about, you know, Kavanaugh, bankruptcy, $2.8 million, foreclosure, like all the big in bold, all caps words that you never want to see. And the reality is I never went, they never declared bankruptcy. I never had a foreclosure. None of that stuff happened, but the paper doesn't print the following story. Like a month later, Kavanaugh saves himself from bankruptcy. Like the whole world assumed that I was like just done. And I always use the analogy of like, I, I wasn't brilliant on Tuesday and a moron on Wednesday. I was never as smart as uh, I was purported to be. And I certainly wasn't as dumb as I was after the recession or in the middle of the recession. I was the same basic person with the same basic skill set and the same risk appetite and the same desire to go and, you know, change intersections and change my little corners of a little city in the Northwest quadrant of the, you know, I, I'm a pretty small fish in a, in a, you know, comparatively small pond. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't even rate uh, in New York or San Francisco or Vancouver, you know, I just, or Shanghai, but important that I can carve out my little niche I was kind of a big deal. And then, you know, the next week I was very much not a big deal. And at that point, where were you to lay the landscape on, on the monetary side? Cause that is a big part of the discussion and not looking for exact numbers, but how was your relationship with investors at that point? And how did you find a way out of that? Uh, which yeah. I think would be a curiosity for many people as a, as a developer. Well, that's a good question. Um, uh, the funny thing is I didn't have investors. So I had to completely change my formula. So, the entire banking system, the entire industry shifted. And the things that I, I did to build myself up, I, that, that, that board game didn't exist anymore. Someone blew that up and I, couldn't, I wasn't allowed to play it anymore. So I had to learn rules to a different game. So I knew that being a small, nimble person, I'm not going to change the way banks do work. I have to change to the new way that, that, that banks are modifying how they do work in the post-recession era. Same thing's going to happen now. Like, like there will be deep and significant changes to how we do things because of COVID-19 um, and, and post-COVID-19. That'll be sometime next year. But there are all these resets and all these, these new ways that other institutions are, are forcing us, you and me, and the, the smaller outfits to, to play the game. So pre-recession, like in 2008, I was, you know, to use numbers, I don't mind, um, it's just on paper anyway. I was worth $4 million. We add up everything that I have and everything that I owe, positive $4 million. A month into the recession, it's negative a million. So, you know, a $5 million swing just on paper. That's why I like the stock market getting hammered right now. I'm like, well, you didn't lose money. You only, you only lose money if you sell. Um, the banks put a gun to my head and I sold. So I actually did lose all that money. So I was underwater a million dollars. I didn't have investors. So I, um, I cross collateralized everything. I used smoke and mirrors and leverage and you know, risky loans and things that I have no problem doing because I never, I only play offense. I'm like, I'm like the 19, you know, 83 Denver Nuggets. I just, I don't know what's the hockey version of that team that has no defense, but just is all about oh, the shots. on. Jeez, right now there's right now the whole, the whole game's changing that way. But I'd say someone like the Toronto Maple Leafs or, or the Tampa Bay lightning right now, full of skill on offense. And then it's, we forgot to come to go back the other way. Sometimes that was me. That was me. <laughs> Happily. So that was fun. I, I'm, I'm down. I was down for that. But I had no investors. I didn't want to have investors because I felt like having other people's money at the table meant that someone's going to say, hey, I don't want you to put that artwork on the box in one, or I don't like that experimental siding you're using on the Otros' building. So I was this purist, this design purist, and I thought that other people's money was going to dilute the, the actual product. I was wrong. Um, but that made it really easy for banks to say, hey, Kavanaugh, you're not worth anything. Like your balance sheet's really weak. We want your loan gone so they did put the gun to my head and forced me to sell at pennies on the dollar so lesson learned now going moving forward i knew i i was good at making buildings I'm, i know i'm good at designing buildings i'm okay at what i do but i can no longer use leverage and smoke and mirrors to do what i do banks were like sorry we need some you know we'll lend you a million dollars we need someone to sign guaranteeing a million dollars and you have 38 dollars in your bank account so I'm not going to give you a million dollars. Um, 
I then gathered investors, and now my current model is more like normal developers. I didn't know what normal was. I never took a class on how to be a developer. Um, so I didn't know what rules I was breaking. But now I look more like a normal developer. I'm still, I still break a lot of rules. But now I've got a bunch of rich folks sitting around the table with me. And, and right now, banks are starting to get a little weird. Not all of them, but I've got one in particular that's, that's being assy. And I've got a lot of rich folk at the table who didn't get rich by selling low. So we're just going to go find a different lender, tell this current lender to go pound sand, and <laughs> we'll be fine. Whereas 10 years ago, I'd have lost the building. Right, right. And now I think I answered you your question. Get, I didn't even know what your question was anymore. Sorry well, about I'm, that. Well, I'm going to, I no, that's awesome. I'm going to come back to it. That's interesting. And, and I guess it does answer my question. I mean, it sounds like your way of coping with that loss through the recession and going from 4 million in profit to negative one, as you, as you explained, how did you keep the mindset that, okay, offense is going to be the best way to play this out? Well, I learned how to play defense. I had to. Um, and so now I, now I do play defense with my, with my work. Like right now I'm better positioned because I do have rich people at the table. I have better lawyers at the table. I don't cross collateralize anything, meaning every building is its own standalone entity. And if one building, you know, has cancer, it doesn't spread to the entire empire. It just stays inside that building. And so it doesn't expose everything else before everything. It was tied to everything. And, you know, if there's a weak link in the chain, it all goes to hell. So I, I learned how to do what I do better because of the recession. It's really interesting you say that because I've heard a lot in the media right now is, is individual societies, uh, provinces, states, and I'd say a ge- geographical region. There's a lot of talk about we need to become more independent and reliable on ourselves as opposed mm-hmm. to waiting for a product from all over the world and not really having what we need right here within our, our own society or, or maybe the, it's, it becomes not stretching too far and needing so much, which comes back to your story as well is what is enough? Yeah. Why do we always need the next building? And well, we need that building. So now let's stretch ourselves super thin just so we can have another building. Yeah. Well, and then the, the one thing that's similar in, in the, the Ted talk to, to this conversation to, to, to the COVID world and what we're going to, you know, how I'm going to, reinvent what I do just to, to respond to where we are is one thing that hasn't changed is it's, it has to be relationship based, long-term vision, relationship based. Like if I'm, if I'm a traditional developer, I'm monetizing every move. Like if you're my lender and you've been my lender for like John Maher at M&T bank, he's the first guy who gave me a loan post recession and he's still my go-to lender I'll, I'll keep going to him until he tells me no, but he's like, Hey, other banks can do better than I can. Like you can get a better rate. You can get a good 8% better down the street at, at blankety blank, you know, uh, uh, credit union. I'm like, I don't care. You were the first to say yes. Like that's a, like I honor that. I respect that. Like me going down the street, just playing that game. i like, sure. I might make an extra 0.03% or point you know, 5% more on the deal, but, but that's just a, I'm just a number to them. Whereas, whereas I'm, I'm more to, to you and, and he's more to me. And, you know, now that it's going to hell in a handbasket, I'm I, all I've been doing recently in the last three weeks is I'm on the phone, no emails, I'm just on the phone calling people. It's easier for us to be kind to each other. It's best when we're face to face. We can't do that. So now I'm talking to you like, how are you doing? What are we going to do? What do you need? Whether it's, one of my 91 tenants, one of my 21 lenders, one of my 300 plus investors, like all I'm doing is like, like, I'm fine. How are you? Like, how's your family? Like, we're going to get through this. It's not going to be pretty. How can I help you? And it's, it's, it's all, it all has to be relationship based and we're going to be fine. A lot of people I'm hearing right now, most people are doing the right thing, but I'm hearing a lot of stories about people who are, who are monetizing every move in the, you know, the typical American way, kind of this hyper-capitalistic way, not questioning enough, but, but assuming there have to be winners and losers, and God damn it, I'm going to be a winner. And that's, that's just not pretty. 
I, and I started it before we, we recorded, I was saying how impressed I am with how humble you are with the education you have. And I, and again, I know you're going to say, as you've said in many of your talks, you know, I'm not that smart. And well, I'm a, I'm, you, I'm a genius. <laughs> oh shit, we're the, recording right now. <laughs> and the part I love about that is that you are challenging and it's not just, and I put in quotations, which I want to dive into the American dream that we've, that we've fabricated and we've created on our own. Um, it, that happens here too, is that we have this concept and idea, well, I've, I've earned all this education. I should now be able to earn a, a, an income that coincides with that. And I should be able to step above others now that, aren't, that don't have that. Yet you challenge all those norms across the board. What is your approach to that American dream and now starting to get into what is enough? Did, that, did this uh, mindset understanding already exist in your life before that recession or was that brought into your life by that experience? I'm sure it was already there. I mean, I was in the Peace Corps. I kind of have that basic idea that like there's a there's a much bigger world than me, or um, you know, I don't I don't I don't I don't want to own a boat. I want a friend who has a boat, but I don't want a boat. Um, <laughs> so that's always kind of been there, but the the recession amplified it. Um, but it's it reminds me a little bit of you when you're when we when I was researching you. Um, so I, th- I thought about Herman Jolly. It's a real life name. That's a, that's a guy who works for me, but he's, he's a older version of you. So he was a musician instead of sports. He chose music and he was in a band that was doing really well and they were touring and they were almost about to be signed and almost about to be signed. Like you're almost about to be signed. Same exact language, just different. Instead of a, a hockey yep. stick, he, he had a guitar and yep. he believed in the dream. He's like, I'm, I'm doing this dream. He got his degree in, in, I think, film and um, in visual studies, uh, got his four-year degree, but he's like, I am, I am going to go all in on my dream. Well, you know, fast forward, he's 38. He's like, you know what? I, I, I've got a wife and a kid. I can't do this. So I hired him. I just, I, I've seen him. I hired him as a painter for the longest time because that, that was his side gig, his side hustle. And I just saw the way he worked and saw the kind of person he was. And, and he's really kind and he's really thoughtful and he listens and he's creative and he just wants to make everyone happy. It's like, I, like, what do you need? I'm, I'm unhappy with how you pick this wall turned out. He's like, I'll fix it. Like, I, like, what do you need? Describe what you need. Where do you not like it? I'll like, I'll just make it right. Cause he knows that he wants me to call him the next time I have got a wall to paint or a building to paint. So he plays a long game. He's a relationship guy. So I, I reached out to him to hire him. I'm like, hey, would you ever consider being my asset manager? And he can take care of all my, but basically be the glorified janitor of all my buildings once they're done. Like, like I don't own a cell phone, but I want to pay someone that works for me to own a cell phone and to get a text when something breaks or when a tenant's unhappy. I don't want that person to make my tenant super happy, super responsive, not be like a nudgy kind of uh, uh corporate person who pushes back, well, per your lease, you're not, no, 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 just fix it. Like make this person happy. And I, I've been watching Herman for the long, for years and years. I'm like, Oh, Herman's wired the right way. So I never even thought for a second about his degree or his pedigree or his background. I just know his internal wiring as human being is a good fit for my company. So there, um, I had a CFO who worked for me who had a degree at Stanford, who had an Ivy League degree, really good person, but she pushed back at this notion that everyone should get paid the same. Like, like I, I've got a crap ton more education than Herman. He's scrubbing toilets. I'm like in charge of all your books. <laughs> of course, I should get paid more than Herman. And in a rational world, she's right. But the funny thing is, there's one thing that didn't come out in the TED talk is, say I hire you. Uh, you make whatever you make. You don't make the same as all of us. We all, we all, we don't, I don't pay very much. We all make 36 bucks an hour. We all get paid by the hour. There's no salaries. Say I bring you on and you're at 25 bucks an hour for, for a while. Then you get a couple of raises. Two years after the day I hire you, everyone in my company not named Ben goes out for a cup of coffee. We sit there at the coffee shop for an hour and we just talk about Ben. And all we, all we, the basic gist is, can we live without Ben? And if we can, then I got to let you go. 
So part of the part of the TED talk that that didn't come across made me sound like I'm like the uh, well, Kavanaugh's a socialist. He, he's going to pay people to be lazy. Like, no, I'm not. Like half that equation is like if you're not awesome, you got to go. And I don't care whether you scrub toilets or whether you do deep spreadsheets or whether you do investor relations or whether you're whatever you do. Um, if you're indispensable, and we all sat around with Herman, we're like, well, of course, like we would be screwed if Herman left. Like we would be in a heap of trouble. Well, he instantly gets paid with the rest of it. He's the 36 an hour instantly. There's no question. And nobody has any problem with that. The person who, who went to Stanford and then got her master's at the Ivy League school doesn't work for me anymore. Um, mm-hmm. Either you're on board the experiment or you're not. And everyone friggin' loves it. It's weird, mm-hmm. but it works. And I also saw that your, your structure for that Again, you seem to be so transparent, but you've shared that your structure also employees make, do they make a, not just their payment, but an asset or a part of piece of asset in the company? Yeah. Yeah. It helps. It helps if I'm underpaying. So there's a bunch of benefits. We, we, um, I, I researched, so I'll get to your question. I always like eventually answer your question, but <laughs> I usually answer the question that I want, that I want to answer and then I answer yours. Perfect. So if I'm paying you below market rate, if market's 50 or 60 bucks an hour and I'm paying you 36 bucks an hour, like, like having a great place to work and having a cool boss and working on fun, interesting projects that, that tackle homeless housing or tackle, you know, how, to, how do you create reverse gentrification or, you know, the, like people are proud of what they do at Gorilla. I'm really, I'm really happy with that, but that's not enough to justify you know, working for 75 cents on the dollar. So first thing, the easy thing was, all right, cool, medical benefits, um, paid family leave. If something like Herman, actually Herman's only son, 17, got leukemia a year and a half ago. And we have paid family leave. And we started because we had two women who were pregnant in the company. And I researched um, the gender pay gap and, and America is d- d- not doing so well on that front. So we started out with fa- paid family leave, but it's not just for having a baby. It's also in case your kid gets leukemia. Or in this case, Jonathan, who sits next to Herman, his, his partner got COVID. So he's, he's not working right now. He's home taking care of her. That's the right answer. A lot of companies where you make more money, in America at least, where you make more money, you just have to kind of fend for yourself. And, um, and the company is not really part of your family or deep support system. We also researched, I researched which state in America has the most paid holidays. Can you guess? Uh, New York? Hawaii. Oh. So we now follow Hawaii's uh, vacation. Because I can give out a crap ton of free days and it doesn't hurt me. Um, last year we decided to to take off between Christmas and New Year's paid. Like it doesn't, it doesn't make me more or less profitable. It's just a nice thing to do. But finally, yeah, so we, we like Prince Kuhio Day or King Kamehameha Day, those are paid holidays at Gorilla. But to answer your question, after the, after the two years, after we sit around at the coffee shop and talk about Ben and decide that you're one of us, from that point on, every year you work for us, you get, a share of the gorilla fund. And that's basically a little sliver of all the buildings that exist in the fund. And those are buildings that we made before you got here. And those are buildings that we wow. might make after you leave. And there's 50 shares and I have six employees. And when I'm done giving all those shares away, we'll start a new fund and new, the new buildings will go into that. And it's like the marshmallow test. Do you know what the marshmallow test is? Um, no, I'm not sure. Um, you should, you should, you and your listeners should Google it, uh, afterwards. They did this test a long time ago, like, like 30 years ago, 40 years ago, probably longer, but they took a bunch of, I think six year olds, they put them in a room and they gave the kid a marshmallow and said, cool, here's a marshmallow. Um, you can eat it if you want, whatever. Uh, I'm going to leave the room now. And if I come back in two minutes and the marshmallow is still here, I'll give you another one. Then you can have two. Oh, right. Okay. Fascinating study. And then they followed up by, by seeing these. So half, roughly half the kids just ate the marshmallow right away. Like, awesome. I'm eating the marshmallow. And then half the kids waited. And lo and behold, the kids who waited when they were adults 
we're more successful. Deferred gratification. So the gorilla fund, like I'm going to pay you less to work for me. We're going to make a lot of, of stuff gorilla style. We're going to do it like on, like, like on a shoestring and get really aggressive and, and, and edgy with it. And me paying you less allows us to do that. And we're going to beat all of our competitors on that front because we're just not a corporate entity. We're just nimble. We're a speedboat. But you leave me 10 years from now and you've got 10 shares of the gorilla fund. You're going to get income every three months for the next 10 years on that. Um, A. And then B, for life, if I ever refinance or sell a building. And right now I think there are 12, or no, there are 14 buildings in the gorilla fund. If you're 70 and I, well, like, like Max Calabro, he has one share of the gorilla fund. Um, I don't know what he's doing now, but I'm about to refinance three of my buildings. He's going to get three checks this year. Um, and that'll never stop as long as he's around. So that's a deeper benefit. That's more like the marshmallow test that allows people to enjoy the, the, the spoils of commercial real estate, which are really lucrative. They're just not lucrative today. They're lucrative in the long term. And now I, a long day. I'm sorry. I'm taking so much of your time. I'm talking no, way too much. I love this. No, this is fantastic because it's, it's so, like we said, when we started, it's so relevant to so many different markets, different businesses. It, yeah. It all does come back to relationships. And, and that's to me, the most important part is it, yes, we can talk business and we can talk numbers, but it ends up all the things we're talking about comes back to deepen those relationships. And, and one of the biggest words we talk about and that I learned in, in hockey outside of the game was respect and trust. And, you know, you can be liked by people, but you're like being liked doesn't include trust. And when you're respected, you have that trust. And that's what I, I was taught to strive for in every room I enter. And it, it's, that's what I think you're getting from these people is that trust and that respect. It's not just about being liked. So it's powerful stuff. I, it goes like you've already said such amazing things in the, in the way you've decided to to run your business, but it, it continues to get even more impressive. And and we briefly touched on it was the work you do for those that are out of home and how you've actually made that model impressive as well. It's not just hey, here's money, let's throw money at these people. It's actually a, a model that will continue to grow and and it it's, seems foolproof to me. So I wondered if you could dive into how you realize that would be a sustainable model, the, the single resident occupancy buildings that you have. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, how's, how's the homeless problem there? There's, there's different pockets of it, to be honest. I would say it's not perfect, but the one thing is, I don't even know if it's as much of the homelessness issue as it is just people living their life completely different differently having less not because they're choosing to but because they're forced to because rent is so high yeah so are they yeah. totally forced out of their home i'm not sure but i i definitely know um they're doing less things or having a lot less things that not just just wants but needs but purely because the rent is so high yeah yeah and that's the part of the population there's 4200 homeless in portland and most of them have mental health issues and or drug addiction issues. And I'm not equipped to help them, but, but almost a thousand of them are people that the economy just passed by. They're like, what just happened? Wait, how did like the margins of my life for me to live on, which we're going to test right now in the COVID world, we're going to find and people, Americans, most Americans don't have enough savings. The vast majority don't have enough of a reserve to live on. So, and the social services in America have been kind of cored out and hollowed out since Ronald Reagan. So we're kind of in this, like I mentioned, hyper-capitalistic world where I got mine, I'll just build a bigger fence to keep the zombies out, which is nothing that we ever stood for ever um, before 40 years ago. And now it's slowly become, that's become the norm. It's like a, a frog boiling in water. Like how did that become normal? Like I shouldn't be special just because I'm not an asshole. That's not, that's not, that shouldn't right. be the new barometer of like what makes someone kind or a good business person. Um, so I'm stepping over people sleeping on the sidewalk to get to my office. I'm like, this is crazy. This is insane. You know, we're, we're friggin' America. What, like, why are we not embarrassed of this? I remember when I, I was in the Peace Corps in Africa 
and a buddy, an African, a Gabonese guy came to visit me and he's in the, the States and, and we walked by a homeless person and he's like, what, what's that? And I'm like, Oh, that person has no home. And he was just like boggled. He's like that. Where's that person's family? Why doesn't that person's family have shame? Why don't you as, why doesn't your society have shame for that? So he's like, there's no, it's like, we're the poorest continent. One of the poorest countries, one of the poorest continents on the planet. There's no homeless in Africa. I'm like, oh crap, you're right. I didn't see that. That doesn't exist. It's like, yeah, everyone, like, it's not all, it's one for, you know, all for one, one for all. It's not like just fend for yourself. And, you know, it's not this Marie Antoinette world of let them eat cake. So I'm like, well, I make, you know, I make buildings. I, I do four walls and a roof. I can, you know, I can, I can try to figure this out. And lo and behold, it wasn't that hard. So, I, I mean, the stuff, like you said, it's all posted open source online. So I knew we can go and get my plans and get the, the spreadsheets and the pro forma. And you can build any of my buildings if you want in your town. That's great. <laughs> but the long story short is like, I, like without a dollar of public subsidy, I created uh, Jolene's first cousin and I'll start Jolene's second cousin um, uh, this year. And like, and probably, Jolene's third cousin, which is a variation of that for single mothers. Um, but it's, it's, it's pretty damn easy. The first thing I do is I go to my investors and say, Hey, like, let's make, let's do, let's just not squeeze every penny of profit out of this project. Let's leave some money on the table and let's just charge lower rent and we'll still charge rent. And in the, in the Jolene's first cousin model, there's six units in that building. I built a new building. There's a, there's a bakery, a coffee shop, a hair salon, two market rate apartments, very expensive, 1800 bucks a month each for a one bedroom. It's, uh, it's very expensive. I'm proud of it. They're beautiful. They're big and they're really cool designs. And the sixth and final unit is this 11 bedroom single residence occupancy. It's like a flop house. Um, it's like an 11 bedroom apartment, basically. Everyone shares a big kitchen, a big, uh, big living room, big dining room. And then you go upstairs down the hall and there's just a bunch of individual bedrooms. There's a, a closet and a wash basin in each, in each bedroom. Um, and there's a bunch of like, there's a bunch of toilet rooms, a bunch of shower rooms, a bunch of laundry rooms. And they all, everyone shares that. And like you're living in a community. It's like adult dorms for a bunch of 60 year olds who were living on the streets, you know, the week prior and they pay rent, but it all works. Instead of an 8% dividend, my investors are getting a, like a 4% dividend. And these are rich folk who aren't buying groceries with their dividend. So they're like, oh my God, I would, I'd be so honored to be part of that. So they're, they're lining up, ready to put more money in the next projects because the government's not doing a good job. And they're like, the funny thing is being small and nimble, being guerrilla style, I don't want to sit at a 17 person table trying to get buy-in from every possible agency to squeeze extra, like just get out of my way. I'll build this. And then the faster I build it, I'll build the next one. And it, it's working. The, I've only just realized this now. And I, I, like I said, I looked through all your stuff, uh, but I'm realizing now on both ends of that equation, the investors, yourself, and those individuals that need homes, they, everyone's like, when you, you're, t- you're t- Ted talk, what is enough? Like everyone has enough. Everyone, it's not as much. It's not squeezing out every penny, like you said, but it becomes enough. And for one of those people in that equation, it's actually more than they had, which is, yeah, which I mean, is sad, but an eye opener. Yeah. I mean, a bedroom, it's like, it's eight feet by 12 feet, um, which is less than, are you, are you metric? It's less, less than three by four. Yep. And it's tiny and there's a little twin bed and a little desk. And so it's, it's, it's monastic living. It is bare bones living, but you're exactly right. I was under a blue tarp in the rain. So it's awesome. And and the funny thing is it's capitalism. It's like, we're all making money on it. Like I'm not embarrassed to make money from this project. I'm not making money on the backs of homeless. I'm making money, you know, and while helping the homeless and the coffee shop is doing great. And the bakeries, now, everyone's super happy. I went to the neighborhood association and I, I thought this is the first time I'm going to have like rotten tomatoes thrown at me because I'm saying, Hey, I'm going to bring a bunch of homeless into your neighborhood. And they were like, yeah, that's cool. Like what's the next, like next. I'm like, what do you like? Aren't do you have any questions? They're like, 
no, like this is fine. It's if you were coming to us with 150 people or 150 uh, person facility, we'd have a different response. This is 11 people. Like we're, we'll likely know their names. And then I'm like, well, that's impressed that like you have this, this attitude towards the homeless. And then one lady in the back's like, yeah, they're not homeless anymore. I'm like, oh, that's a good point. That is powerful stuff. I love it. What, what would your opinion be on this? And I, this is kind of venturing off topic, but you, I feel like you'd have the answer. In what may occur down the road, um, I have a feeling that nonprofit work, charity work, uh, outward social movement stuff, I say stuff because I put it all under one umbrella. Yeah. Will that become part of profitable businesses in the near future? Because, and I say that because, like we said, people are going to second guess where they put their dollar. They already are. But then also when this thing is done um, and we've come out the other side, do you think there's going to be now more gray area uh, between businesses having to have social good that they're doing as opposed to let's run our business, squeeze every penny we can, and then try and, you know, artificially show like we're doing good by investing in whatever the foundation is. Do you think those are going to blend together? Yeah. hundred uh, percent. I think Canada's way better poised for that than America. I think it's going to happen in, in other countries that America won't be on the floor of it. Um, but uh, places where there's not uh, like, like class warfare playing out with regards to like, you know, the word socialism, because, you know, if I'm, if I'm helping somebody, like I was joking about calling myself a socialist in the TED talk, not a socialist, socialist, socialism is where the government takes over the manufacturing and production of, of, of products. Like you own an apparel company. Socialism is when the government comes by and says, yeah, you can't make t-shirts anymore. We're going to make t-shirts. Um, like we're, that's never going to happen. Like your apparel company is going to, going to crush it based on your good ideas and, and your good product. Um, it, it, it's silly to think that, that anything otherwise would happen, but you're right. That we, we used to live in this bifurcated world where if I'm a Rockefeller or if I'm a Carnegie, you're in Pittsburgh, if I'm a Carnegie, I, I will like, make as much money as I possibly can with my left hand. I will club baby harp seals if it, and sell their pelts if it's profitable, and I'll and I'll be an industrialist bastard and I'll step on your throat for a buck. And with my right hand, I'll build a university or I'll, for free or I'll build a library or I'll, I'll do something deeply charitable. That's the way it was generations ago. And now I think there is this blending of um, why, why do we have, why does it have to be this duality to it? And I think you're going to see, I think you're going to see this shift. I, I, I don't know in America if it's going to be big enough to override corporate greed so stout. And it's so easy for me to hide behind a board or like these nameless and faceless organizations. Yeah. So I think other nations are, it's, it, they have better infrastructure and just uh, um, better basic social fabric to create this higher social capital than in America. Uh, I, let's, I'll go back to the banking analogy. It used to be that I would see my, my banker at the grocery store and I know the name of his or her kids and, and vice versa. And my banker would never foreclose on me. My banker would work with me because there'd be such, again, shame. There's not enough shame in society today. My banker would be so ashamed the next time he, he or she saw me at the PTA meeting or on the soccer pitch with our kids that they did an assy move to me that they didn't have to do. That doesn't exist anymore. There's gated communities. There's, it, it's, it's, I don't know the name of my banker. It's just, it's just Bank of America or it's just Wells Fargo. It's just this big organization. And that's, that's not, that's not going to help getting to your suggestion of, of kind of kinder, softer gray area. Um, how can, how can this duality exist? within the same entity. It has to happen on a smaller, nimbler, granular scale, like the size of your company, the size of my company. It's not gonna happen at Wells Fargo. Um, I could see that. And when, it's, when the top is fueled by this uh, American dream type, more, 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 there's, I don't see it stop, the, a stop in sight, unfortunately. The American dream is mostly about your and my ability to move up and down the ladder based on our merit and what we do. Like if I work hard, the American dream is that I can go from lower middle class to upper middle class. 
and maybe my kids can go from middle class to upper class based on hard work. And if I'm born upper class and I'm a complete dolt and I go to Vess and I become a cocaine addict and I, and I have a gambling addiction, I'm going to drop down the ladder and become middle class. And you know, that's just how it works. That's how it always has worked historically. The American dream isn't necessarily, a, it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. It's not a greedy thing. It's just that now it's broken. Like, um, like Baron Trump, probably a good kid. I'm sure he's a good kid. He's never good. He could be, he could make the worst decisions in his life all lifelong. And he's still going to be, at the top of the ladder where, and there are people in America who are, are just the cream of the crop intellectually, academically, great work ethic. And that's still today, not always enough. And that's what's, that's why we're number 17 on the list of the American dream. It's like 16 countries do the American dream better than us where there's more mobility within the culture than us because they're purer about it. And they haven't kind of, uh, if you're born poor, the bottom 20%, you're likely to be poor still, regardless of what happens 30 years, 40 years down the road. Same with wealthy. If you're born wealthy, you're kind of set. So it feels a very aristocratic. It feels very 15th century France. And I, that's, 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 that's the field that I'm playing in. So it's easy for me to break the rules and just say, yeah, cool. I'm not going to play by those rules. It'd be nice to see people earn an opportunity like you do at the round table two years after someone works for you. Imagine opportunity and, and potential profits were earned that way. And they would, yeah. it would encourage more of the same, right? Oh, wait a second. That person shows up on time and treats people well. And now they're getting the assets in the gorilla development. Like, Oh, maybe yeah. I should start acting similarly. And now you have more people acting the right way. Uh, have you changed the views of people in your, maybe your competitors, uh, or other people in different markets, different different businesses that know you have reached out to you, have seen your work, and and you've you forced them to change their ways of working. Has that happened? Oh, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> that I mean that in, the bar is very low in real estate development. I mean, I again, I I think I'm just like it. It it's really easy to make a lot of money really fast and, 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 um, and it tends to attract a certain kind of person. So, you know, Portland has a lot of good developers, like really kind, thoughtful developers. And I can, I can start rattling off names. I actually, you know, Eli Spivak, you know, uh, uh, Jonathan Mousen, uh, you know, Ed McNamara, Anya Le Havala, Tom Cody, good people. I like naming names because I can name names of assholes. So I, there's not enough time on your podcast for me to name all the assholes. <laughs> It's just, it, it's like 17 pages of assholes. So for me to, A, it'd be weird for me to, that's an impossible question for me, to, for me to answer. It'd be admitting that I'm like special and I'm not, I'm just not an asshole. That doesn't make me special. Um, B, I, I don't think anyone really cares. I, I think at least, I think I might have a, a stronger reputation outside of this town than in this town. I think within developers, people probably think I'm that quirky, weird guy at best. Or maybe that annoying guy that doesn't shut up and needs to just kind of keep his opinions to himself at worst. Um, and my, my guess is in other towns, um, you know, it might be a, a little easier to, to, to prop me up or, or, or take a little piece of what I do and emulate it. Interesting. Just because, I, I mean, I see, like I said, when we first got on the call, it, you've inspired me uh, I mean, not to go build buildings, but to approach business in the way that you've approached it, where you've, you put the, uh, more of that value on the relationship and the long-term game than vice versa. And uh, I think, I just think there must be other people. And, and with the amount of people that have seen your work, I, I'm quite certain you've, you've enlightened people in a way that you've enlightened me. I, I, I'd be confident to say that. Now, in, on the number side of thing, the market side, when you were able to build these buildings with the investors that you have, and this is maybe a spinoff of the last question, do you think your model has convinced or maybe turned away? I'm sure you've turned away some potential investors, but oh, have, other, have other buildings tried a similar model? Have, have they realized, oh, wait a second, the, the market value of that building is a little lower. So has that changed the market at all in, in your immediate area? I don't think so. 
the funny thing is like I like the zipper is my uh, my first new construction micro restaurant cluster, which has like deep social capital. It's this little eight thousand square foot. I think it's like more like smaller than that even. A cluster of seven seven tenants and a common dining room. You know, coffee shop, four restaurants. There's a bar, a nail salon called Finger Bang. They're awesome, like a rock and roll nail salon. There's 600 people a day go to the zipper. It's this little like injection of of yumminess on this area in this area of Portland that's not really there, there's not much to it. It's where all the used car lots were back in the day. And now the other side of me, corporate developers have come by and bought big swaths of land to build massive buildings. My guess is that it really that they know that their tenants want to be next to the hip food hub. Mm. Um, so, and I'm fine with that. Like I, like my tenants will do better knowing there's going to be 800 wallets across the street who want what they're selling. So I'm not going to like the architecture. It's going to be very kind of hulky and, and monolithic and look like Dallas or Phoenix. <laughs> or it's going to kind of like, like, cause the companies come from Dallas, Dallas and Phoenix, but I, you know, I, I can't fight it. I think I, I think I'd change, I might change intersections little by little because of that. But on a macro level, I don't, I don't, I'm not even a rounding error. Right. Now I need to give a, a quick list of, of names of your buildings and then we're going to get to how the heck you've named them all, but I'm going to give some <laughs> examples. So the, the Burnside Rocket, Dr. Jim's, the Zipper, the Ocean, and one of my favorites and most bizarre is the Fair Haired Dumbbell. So mm-hmm. Can you, <laughs> any of them, can you pick, like, where did the fair haired dumbbell come from? Um, those are good questions. I can't answer all those questions. And it's actually, <laughs> you only gave the, 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 the abbreviated version. So Dr. Jim's is officially Dr. Jim's still really nice. That's the name of the <laughs> okay. building, the name of the LLC. Because there was a building called Dr. Jim's, uh, Dr. Jim is really nice, LLC. And in the recession, that was an old warehouse that I bought from a guy named Dr. Jim Saunders. And at the time, I, I got a hard money loan, like smoke and mirrors. So I borrowed money from a guy named Tom Saunders, no relation. And Tom, the, the day after, sorry, long story to a very short question. And not even the question that you answered. Oh, the fair hair dumbbell. <laughs> but Tom Saunders, like the week after he lent me the money, did an end around, went to Dr. Jim Saunders and said, hey, Kavanaugh's you know, borrow money from me without telling you. It didn't matter, by the way. It doesn't, I didn't need to tell him where I got my money. Um, Kavanaugh's a weak link in the chain. You're going to get screwed. If you do these things, I'd like to step in and basically take over his position and, and, and then I'll, I'll have the building and I can pay you off right now. And Dr. Tonish called me. He's like, what the hell is going on? Like, what are you doing? I'm like, well, sorry, I borrowed money. Like, it's, I'm allowed to, but like, sorry that it got to you. Anyway, I cleaned it up. I, I instantly paid off the shark. I'm like, wow, what a horrible person you are. Dr. Jim, a couple different times, could have made more money by doing other things that were legal, but he just did. He's like, I wouldn't do that, but like, but like get your house in order, Kevin. Um, and you know, you're, you're a good guy, but like you're running too fast. Like get your house in order and, like, and I'll be patient. I'll wait for you. But um, there are other offers for more money and I can make more money by going with someone else. But I shook your hand, but I gave you my word. That's a contract. That's how I work as well. So I literally named the project Dr. Jim's Really Nice because he's really nice. <laughs> and in the recession, I lost the building. I had to sell a building. But the idea of buying this warehouse and converting, it, I was going to convert that warehouse into six housing units. And they're going to be really cool double height spiral staircase units, edgy, fun. Fast forward six years, I bought another building, very similar warehouse. It's where, I, it's where I'm talking to you from right now. It's where I live. It's four units. Uh, it was a vacant printing press. And the idea didn't die. Dr. Jim is still really nice. So I, I have no idea what happened to Dr. Jim Saunders. I probably should reach out to him and just let him know, hey, by the way, I, I named a building that you were, are in no way related to after you. Um, That's so, awesome. you know, it means something to me. It doesn't mean anything to anyone else. That's a really long answer to just yeah. a dumb, a dumb I love all name. the. 
I love all the history or, or stories behind the names. And I think that leads into the way that you've decided to work. And when I say work, I mean design. Getting into that side of the yeah. conversation, uh, you've, you've been quite outward that a lot of your work are also social experiments. Now, how have you been able to tie physical building development to these social experiments? What are some examples of things that you've done? Oh, that's the easy part. So the, the hard part about being an architect, and I'm not a licensed architect, but I went to school I got my degree in, in architecture. The hardest part about being an architect traditionally is that someone comes in to your firm and hires you to build X. And, and they've decided what the X is. I call it phase zero. So I actually get hired as an architect at phase one. So they say, here's the site I've purchased. I've already studied the zoning. I know what's most profitable for me. I have my formula and it's to build apartment buildings or it's to build, you know, um, an Applebee's restaurant with some office behind it, whatever it is that they do and they're good at, that's what we get hired to do. So we're basically taking a, a pro forma, picking a spreadsheet and making it as pretty as we can within really tight constraints that are already handed to us. Being a developer, I get to decide what phase zero is. I get to decide what the it is. So, so I'm doing a product now um, called the atomic orchard lofts. And I, I, it's a housing project. There's retail on the ground floor and there's housing above about 50 apartments. And the apartments are all about 580 square feet, 600 square feet. What's that divided by nine? So 65 square meters. Um, well, is your audience mostly American? Sorry, no, I'm in Waterloo. So I'm audience is almost 50, 50 American Canadian. Okay, perfect. Yes. <laughs> um, so yeah, 65 square meters, eight, you know, they're, they're six meters tall, they're really cool, edgy, fun lofts. And that's not the experiment. The experiment is, um, the design is neat. I like the design, but the experiment is um, with a program. Like, like, I can't help, it. actually the experiment on this one is legal discrimination. Um, I want to honor what kind of citizen you are. So 20 of the 50 units are affordable and a handful of those are affordable based on how much money you make, but most of them are affordable based on what you do. Meaning if you're a social worker and you are working on the front lines of the homeless problem, and I don't care what you make, the fact that you get up every day and you go into to the soup kitchen or whatever you do, that's amazing. Our city is screwed without you. Maybe you're a first responder. Maybe right now you're a nurse and you're, and you're working on, on COVID and you're just getting hammered by this and you're, and you're not even questioning whether you should go to work or not. You just, all you know is that you run into burning buildings to, to save people and that's what you do. So I want to honor that. So here's, here's a three-year lease and a set of keys. The, the loft right next to you, next door, is 1600 bucks a month. Here's the same loft for 600 bucks a month. Thank you. Same idea. I turned to my investors. I'm like, we're just not going to make as much money. We're going to make a lot of money, but we're just not going to make as much. And we're going to honor citizens and, and thank them for what they do. And they're like, well, that's discrimination. You can't, you can't do that. I asked my lawyer, oddly enough, you can. I can't discriminate against you, Ben, because you're heterosexual or because you're a man or because you're white. Um, but I can discriminate against you because of what you do. You chose your profession. That's not that that's that's just like a jacket you put on you can change it tomorrow you can't change your sexuality tomorrow or your 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 religious belief tomorrow but um but that's actually legal for me to do and i can't wait to finish the building and start my first legal discrimination project <laughs> that is amazing that is so cool i can't wait to see i can't wait to see how it goes i mean i think there'll be i think i know a party of people that will be very grateful for the for the building when it's done and i've got uh first responders that run in the family so that's pretty cool to pretty yeah. cool to hear especially right now with where we're at and you know you see the you know the athletes were the first people to to kind of step step away from everything and now it's yeah. you see in society where do we put value right so that's i think that's a fantastic idea. Do you, is there any other things that you hope to, to experiment with one day, like a, maybe even a bit of a pipe dream or, or a longer term goal of, I'd love to try this. Is there anything like that? Or, or are you not able to share these top secret? Um, they're not top secret, but it's, 
it's a bit of an affliction. The, this is going to sound arrogant and I apologize, but like the ideas never stop. Like if I wanted to stop, I couldn't stop. Uh, I, I would do what I do for free. We're testing that theory right now. Cause, uh, like there's no money in, no money out. And I still go to work and I, I still am kind of fascinated by it. So I, I like, like you earlier in the chat, we were talking about, um, before you hit record, like you're talking about puzzles. I love puzzles. We're in a big ass puzzle right now. And I, I'm kind of fascinated by how I can figure it out and, or, or try my best to figure it out and, and help the most people along the way. And it's not because I'm mother Teresa incarnate it, the whole help the most people along the way. It's just that we can. So why not? Um, that's part of the puzzle. Like, like it would be easy for me to make a lot of money in the COVID epidemic. A lot of people are making a lot of money right now by being super smart, taking their business school um, readings and, and running them through like a, a bit of a, of an evil filter. And on the other end there, there, you know, there's a lot of money to be made. Uh, I want to do the opposite. There's, there's a lot of, a lot of money to be made, a lot of buildings to be made a lot of experiments to happen, a lot of ideas that are just still kind of coming out. Ask me in a, in a week, it'll be a different idea than my, week, my idea today. But uh, yeah, there's, there's lots of... I mean, that's what keeps you going. It's come up a lot on the podcast, right? That, that curiosity, that, that chase of something, regardless yeah. of what it is and regardless of what your story is, where you're at, is if you have something to chase, it's what gets you up. It's what energizes you. Uh, I think it's fascinating. And now I'm going to conclude on one question because it's when I've this all started by me scrolling through the internet and seeing Kevin Kavanaugh, what is enough? And I want to ask you, and you can take this wherever the heck you want. What is enough? And what have you realized is enough in life? Uh, that's a good question. Um, and like the last answer, it, it changes not maybe every week, but certainly every handful of years, I would answer that differently. Um, at the, at the, on the details, the, the, the big answer, the big pictures, hopefully the same for folk. They don't, as long as they don't go through deep trauma. Like I, it, it was funny in the, in the Ted talk, I showed the picture of my home. It was a lovely home. It's a million dollar home. Well, it is now at the time it wasn't, it doesn't matter, but it was like an idyllic Norman Rockwell painting of a street. And my kids knew it. They grew up there. They learned how to ride their bikes there. We would have potlucks. It was, it was amazing. Um, we, that's when I was above, you know, uh, up $4 million. A year later, we're living in the auto body shop on, on the used car boulevard that where there aren't any homes. It's just, it's just like an industrial sanctuary. It's weird. It's like, it's not far from my our old house. So we still go to the same grocery store. The kids go to the same school, but the funny thing is our kids had no idea that we were rich when we were rich and they had no idea living in the auto body shop that we were a million dollars underwater. They, if I bought my kids seven pair of shoes, they'd still just wear their one favorite pair until the soles blew out of them. Uh, we didn't live any differently right now. My, my pay is cut to 20% of what it was two months ago. All the kids are home from college. We're having family dinner every night. We play Scrabble every night after dinner, and then we're watching a movie. We might fight about the movie, but we probably don't. Um, <laughs> we'll play a game. We'll, we'll Rochambeau. I mean, by fighting, I mean we Rochambeau, or we arm wrestle, um, or, you know, or we leg wrestle, or we thumb wrestle, or we, we figure something out, and we're laughing the whole damn time. Like, I don't care what's in my bank account right now. Uh, I just don't want to worry about food or health or safety or – um, you know, the roof over my head. If I have that covered, Maslow's basic needs. If I have those covered, that's enough. It's probably the same for you. It just, it's a, it, it might look a little different for you. You're younger, you have no kids, um, different town, different professional expectations, but you know, you're fine, right? Totally. And I like how you worded that. Cause I think others listening will, will take that too. Personally, like you've got enough, right? And I think, this is such a powerful time for that reflection. And I think it's a powerful time too, because you can't really run from it. You're inside uh, with your thoughts and you got to f- recollect on that. What, you know, this isn't too bad. You know, this small square yeah. footage that we're in and geez, we have square footage and it's like, we have a roof yeah. and we have health. And so uh, that's, that's an absolutely remarkable way to finish this. And this whole conversation has been um, 
Uh, if there's anything else that you wanted to dive into, any other messages you wanted to put out there, there may be some potential investors listening, who knows <laughs> if, if you were looking to put a little ad in there, but uh, unless you have anything else to, to add, um, this has been unbelievable and I can't thank you enough for your time. Thanks, Ben. I, I got a kick out of it. Uh, and a good job on your end too. Great podcast. I, I really, um, I got a kick out of researching you before hopping on board. Um, yeah, it's fun. I, I have a lot of optim. How old are you? I'm 27. I have a lot of optimism and a lot of that revolves around your generation. Like I know we're going in a good direction. Um, I'm not necessarily happy with my generation or my parents' generation you know, no, no ill harm intended, but I'm really excited about you guys and seeing what you end up doing when, you know, as you take the reins. Oh, amazing. Well, I'm, I'm happy to hear that. Yeah. I think a lot of good, if, if we continue having conversations like you and I just did today, I think a really a lot of good and, and incredible positive change can happen through this, this tough time. And yep. it starts with reaching out to people and, and having these conversations. So I, for you to take this time today again, it's, uh, I told you, you've made change in my life and, and I know you'll make change in a lot of others in such a great way. Happy to do so. It's been fun, Ben. Thanks, awesome. thanks for, yeah, uh, this has been amazing. for standing up the first time and happy we did it the second time. <laughs> All good. Just playing hard to get. I understand. Well, man. <laughs> Thank you right, so take much. Take care, man. That brings us to the end of another Heroic Mind podcast. If you want to keep the conversation going, as always, my email is in the description of these episodes. And furthermore, if you are enjoying these episodes, feel free to leave a positive review on whatever platform it is you use to listen. I'm Ben Finelli. This is the Heroic Minds podcast. We'll talk again soon.